My guest today is the Chief Revenue Officer with Scurry. Here's what some of his colleagues say about him. Great to work with, solutions-focused, knowledgeable, and motivates his team and colleagues with a calm, direct, and clear mindset. Here's a second. Excellent leader is what comes to mind when I think about him. His ability to work through a crisis and develop new ways to achieve targets is inspiring. Fergal Carr, you're very welcome to the podcast. Great, thank you for having me on. My pleasure, Fergal. Let's go back, Fergal, uh, talk about where it all started. I'm trying to peg your accent. I'm guessing Dublin, but I don't want to assume. No, you're right. So I'm a Dublin lad born in Hollis Street Hospital. Uh, actually, both my parents are, are dubs, and both their parents are dubs. So, yeah, I do have a strong okay. Dublin background. Um, okay. Yeah, so kind of a, a child of, of the late 60s, just squeezed in there uh, on the moon landing, and the year of the moon landing. Um, but really grew up, obviously, in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, uh, initially started out um, living in Dundrum, and then we moved out to Lucan, which we pretty much been based most of my life. Um, mm. my parents, um, they ran news agents actually, um, in the seventies and eighties, um, which have kind of been surpassed now by, you know, petrol stations and the center and the spar. But back in the seventies and the eighties, news agents were a big thing. You know, a lot of people would do their shops mm. out of shopping in a news agent. So, um, you know, my formative years, I have great memories of, of going to the news agents, um, with my parents working on a Saturday or a mm. Sunday as a young lad. I think I was probably 10 years old when I when I had my first uh, stint in the shops. And um, I can remember going up on a Sunday morning, say, with my father, and we'd come up to the shop. The newspapers would be all outside the shop front, just sitting there. And we'd come up, and uh, actually people would be queuing outside to get their newspapers. And uh, in those days, people would buy three or four newspapers. And I can remember, you know, cutting off the strings in the newspapers and bringing them into the, into the shop, putting them on the shelves. And then I'd go behind the counter and serve the customers, you know, as a 10 year old, which was quite an interesting experience. Um, and you learn a lot just at a young age from dealing with, with customers, essentially, at that, at that young age. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of the formative year. So it's very much Dublin based. That's, it's, it seems like another world when you think about, again, the corner shop. I'm, I'm, and, and you're right. I remember that growing up as well. And neighbors that send you up there for the milk and they'd give you trust right. a bit. As, as yeah uh, and the newspapers was interesting in terms of how people got their news you had the press and independent the main ones which were the two political wings and, yeah, and you, exactly. you think how how far things have come and how the world has changed and i'm guessing also they did their shopping there because trans, most people didn't have cars so you had to carry the shopping there was probably a bit of that and i mean supermarkets yeah. weren't as big as they are today um and it, it was just uh, a lot easier for people to go local yeah. and and yeah. my parents initially were running a, a news a news agent in Leakslip, and then they had another one in Watkinstown. Yeah. so quite yeah. different communities there as well um and yeah. it was interesting to see the the difference of what people would buy in the different communities so Watkinstown was much heavier i think on one set of goods than say leaks it would be yeah. they just bought different things it was quite interesting yeah. and i remember we I'm used curious, to go to did... musgraves and 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 the wholesaler musgraves if you're familiar with that yes and uh yes we'd go out there and we'd buy all the goods on wholesale and then pack them up into the van and then bring them back to the shop and that was that was fun times too can i tell you a story about musgraves my parents didn't didn't have a shop um and 
but but somebody they knew got hold of a Musgraves card, which was like a golden oh, yeah. pass. <laughs> That's right. That cheap, o- cheaper, only a certain products. club had access to. That's right. And yeah. they went, and it was something they were buying, something big. I can't remember, like a washing machine. But they came back. They, so they, I grew up in Kilkenny, drove to Dublin, got what they needed, but also bought some other goodies. Like they bought this box of club milks that had 60 club milks in it. <laughs> and there was a special offer on it that you could get these little dinky cars. And if you saved up and it was like one for every, I don't know, it was 12 wrappers or something like that. But I remember taking all the wrappers off and sending them off in one go and getting six of these uh, dinky cars back in the post. That's, that's my recollection of Musgraves. Um, I, I was curious to know a couple of things that out of that was one, did your parents, I'm curious, run a book in the shop where certain customers, there was a ledger where they could buy stuff on take? Or was that a I more of a believe practice? So. I don't believe so. No, yeah. that doesn't ring yeah, a bell. No. They, may, they may have in the very, very early stages, but yeah. I don't recall that, no. I, I wondered about that. Just in the context of a lot of modern solutions we have are existed a long time ago just in a different format. So when we talk about credit, I remember growing up that it, it was a big thing. There were certain shops you could go into and you could say, you know, put, put that on the yeah. take. And then you'd settle your bill at the end of the month with right. the shop, which was yeah. a very local solution to a, a real problem people have throughout the ages. Tell me, Fergus, growing up, was there something in that experience that you had that led, that you feel led to what you're doing today? Was I there do. clues? I do, yeah, definitely. I mean, as I mentioned, my parents, Colin and Sally, they, they, they ran two news agents at the same time. So if you think about it, that's a seven day a week job, right? Because they, they, they had to, one had to be in one shop and the other in the other. And these shops open from eight in the morning until 10 p.m. at night. They're, they're Saturdays and Sundays also, uh, although they did close early on the Sunday. So strong work ethic from both my parents and that certainly uh, fed into me. And also everything they did in business was was um, based around honesty and integrity because they, they wanted to be treated as, as they treated other people. And I noticed that from very early age, you know, my mother was, I used to say she's as honest as the day as long as she found a euro on the street, she'd bring it into the guard station, you know, that, that type of individual. So mm. that certainly has fed into my life and my business career that, you know, honesty and integrity are very important to everything you do um, and work ethic as well. And like mm. I said, I started working when I was literally 10 years old in the shops and I continued to do that as a, a young teenager and I had uh, <clears throat> jobs in a bar as well, like, you know, like most kids. And, you know, by the time I was 17 or 18, I was, I was doing work in the news agents, I was working in the bars. And um, I think that gives you a great sense of customer service, how to deal with the public. Mm. And mm. it does absolutely follow through into business. Definitely. No questions. Mm. And how did that influence the choices you made then when you left school? So as a as a young guy, I was very interested in computers, and I'm talking now, you know, in the eighties, computers were nascent; they were very, very uh, new. So I started off with the Commodore sixty four at home, and I play games on it. But then I realised you could actually program these computers, and um, in the news agent, there'd be magazines coming in, and, and I would, I would, you know, I'd buy the computer magazines, and they would basically teach you how to program. 
and I got very enthralled by that. And throughout my teenage years, I was, I was, um, and then I progressed into personal computers because they started to come out as well in the, in the late eighties. And mm-hmm. um, my programming developed, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do from a from a, from a career perspective because if, if mm-hmm. back then there was no such thing as IT, it didn't exist. You know, there was no career in IT. Mm. Um, so in school, like you, when you'd go to the 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 career job, the fest, you know, the discussion about your career, nobody ever mentioned IT because it just wasn't no. on the radar. And I spotted um, this course, uh, it was a one-year course, City and Guilds course in programming of all things. And I said, this, this is for me. And then that completely distracted me. I thought, right, no college, not interested in school anymore. This is what I want to do. So I got through the leave and just scraped by. <laughs> I had no real interest in the academic side of the leave and but I was very interested in programming. And my parents um, basically went down to the credit union, got a massive loan for this one-year course because it was very expensive, it, uh, um, uh, very expensive course. Mm. Um, and they got me on it. And that started my career. So it was a very pivotal moment in, in my life that my parents wow. were able to do that for me. Uh, and without that, I don't know what I'd be doing today. But um, that, yeah, that started What year was that career. in Fergal? That would be 1988. 1988. That yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, because I, I remember that time as well, and I was looking at it. The only thing you could do in college was computer science or electronics. There was nothing in between. Um, and, and, and as I said to you, I, I kind of wasn't very academic, and I, I, yeah. I, I knew that programming was for me, and computer science was just broader and, and wasn't really for what I wanted to do. And you couldn't get into it, Fergal, because I tried that, and I didn't have enough points in maths to get into yeah. the computer science. And what I did was I went to a college in England again, a one year, and I did right. some programming at night in Kevin Street. Uh, but it was no, it was it was microprocessors, and so you yeah. had to learn the assembly language for the processor itself. Okay. So yeah. a, a little bit more pointed, but that was enough then to get me into this college in England where I did C programming, and that was enough to get me a job as a programmer as well. But it was a, quite a convoluted path. There was no straight line, no, unless you had the, those specialist courses. Um, yeah, exactly. In, and and having done that course, then I suddenly realised there's there's still no IT industry. There is there is no jobs in Ireland for someone just coming out of this course. So here I was, yeah. very excited about programming, getting ready to to go out into the world, and I realised, hang on, there isn't any uh, jobs here in Ireland. Uh, and yeah. then that led me to to the next phase of my life when I emigrated to. Yeah. Well, I was, I was just going to ask that because you contrast that, and I, and, and I know you know times are tough for young people. I think throughout every generation has its own particular struggle. They have it now. We had it then. We had unemployment. I think it was like twenty percent at the time, where or or like you said, where there was a particular industry that if you wanted to pursue it, you couldn't do it. You had to move somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and contrast that with England. I remember when I was doing my course in Stafford they were coming to the colleges, the milk round, and I was offered a job before, you know, contingent on passing my exams, but you were, it yeah. was like, like night and day back then as well, so uh, interesting. So tell me then what, what happened after that. So now you're a programmer, you're in London, tell me a little bit about the industry yeah. you're working in and, and, and how you got from there to what you're doing today. So I'm 19 years old. Um, I've emigrated to London. I'm just getting to grips with, you know, looking after yourself, living on your own, doing the washing, feeding yourself, all, the, all of those things, and looking for a job. Um, 
so it took me about six weeks to to find a job um which in hindsight doesn't sound that long but it's quite long when you're you know in london on your own trying to find it find work and mm. you know you're in the pay phone dropping the pound coins talking to your parents every week or so and they're asking you well how was this week did you get it and so on um but thankfully i did i did get a job um but as i was doing those different interviews to try and get the work uh, something cropped up in one of the interviews that again kind of changed my life and one of the interviewees said to me he said listen um i see you've got the the, the, the one-year programming certificate but you don't have a degree do you think you can do just mm. as well as other people coming in uh, here who have degrees and of course i said oh yes absolutely i can um but it got me me thinking that hang on i need a degree you know i'm, mm. I'm gonna have to get a degree here um, so anyway, I got a job in programming, um, despite the lack of a degree, but I decided very quickly, okay, I'm going to get a degree as well. Um, and I decided it's not going to be in computing because what's the point? Because if it takes four to five years to get a degree, I'll have been working in computing for four or five years. So I'm, I'm only just mm. reconfirming what I've already doing. So I, I did a business degree and, uh, I, I went into what was then called, I think, Ealing Polytechnic, um, which now is called Thames Valley University, so that, that's that's moved on. Um, very lucky to be able to just get, get a get a place for free. Essentially, back then that'd be unheard of. Now, obviously, it's very expensive to go to college, particularly as as someone moving into the UK trying to get Ooh. a college place. So, very grateful to the Ealing Polytechnic and and the UK in general for affording me that um, that um, option. Ooh. So, I did that part time then for I think it was good to five years. Um, so that was a big part of my early life in London. So you're working, uh, but also studying, going to college, you know, twice, uh, Mondays and Wednesdays. I think it was half six to half nine. Studying then, obviously, in between, doing assignments. Um, yeah, so five years of study on top of what I was doing. So that was, uh, I'm glad I did it. You know, it's, it has stood to me. Um, and I'm glad I did it in business studies as well, not in something computer science related as well. Do you look back on that time with a sense of nostalgia? Um, somewhat, somewhat. I, I had mixed feelings about living in London because in my case, it wasn't necessarily by choice. It was more by necessity because there, no, there was no work in Ireland. So I, I kind of had to be mm. in London. So, you, you know, you're, you're young, as I, as I mentioned, you're away from your family and friends. Um, you're in a foreign society, uh, you know, um, at the same time, great city um, afforded me great access to the world. Um, I met my future wife there, also an Irish woman, Mary, um, who's played a big part in my in my life too. Um, we had a we both had a joy for travel. So being based in London, you know, London, you can access nearly anywhere directly by a, by a plane, which is fantastic. And we did we, we traveled the world for years. Um, and so so as I said, mixed feelings. On one hand, was there by necessity, but at the same time, I think I made the most of it and really enjoyed it. And London has continued to play essentially a, a very big role in my life um, ever since I moved there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm traveling there this afternoon, for example. So, you know, London is, is a big part of my life. Mm. And when you look back at that time, what, what do you feel was motivating you most? Um, I had a strong desire to progress within my career and I realized maybe four to five years into it that I I had leadership or management skills I wasn't in management roles but I looked at the management around me and leadership around me and I thought I, I could do that I could do it better maybe a little arrogant mm. right but I, I just felt 
there was something there I, I, I could do. Now, I, I wasn't really afforded that opportunity in those early years in, in London. I wasn't in any, any leadership roles. But after about eight years, I decided to move back to Ireland. And this was just around the start of the Celtic Tiger. And, uh, you know, I can remember my parents going, are you crazy <laughs> coming back to Ireland? Uh, because it was really only just beginning. Um, but I, it was right for me. I would got married in the meantime. And Mary and I decided it was right to come back. And we want to start a family. And we really wanted to start it in Ireland and, and not in the UK. Um, mm. So what was motivating me through those years was progression in my career. But also I had this niggling feeling that there was something more that I could do. I could, I could offer a little more. But I was still quite young. So I didn't have a lot of experience behind me. So when I came back to Ireland, uh, my first job was in the IT department at Dunn Stores, which was fantastic, um, really enlightening, um, great business to be in, um, just just mm. really fast moving. Um, competition was coming in from the UK. Um, we introduced the, the Dunn Stores loyalty card, I think it's called the Value, Value Club, I think it's called. Um, so that was that was new in the business, and that was my first taste of data analytics. So the ability to analyze their sales and make predictions off the back of that and change and make better decisions. Something I hadn't come across because my, my London career was all about programming. And now I was moving into this area called analytics, which is completely new to me. And um, a guy called Seamus Ivers came in one day from a company called Client Solutions and was talking about this thing called data warehousing, which I'd never heard of. Uh, which is really just analytics and um, he educated me a little bit on what client solutions did and before I knew it I was working for client solutions I'd left on stores and James had given me a role as the head of their new business intelligence division with I think one employee <laughs> and that was the start of the next chapter in my career so it was a really um, mm. uh, fortuitous meeting with James. I remember Seamus I remember client solutions too. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's interesting listening to your story, and it parallels my own in many ways. Is you know not getting a really strong leaving cert, doing programming, going to England, and then doing a business degree over there for the same similar, and then coming back to Ireland at the start of the Celtic Tiger. And and as I listen to it, it's not the first time I've heard that on on the podcast. People talk about that. I I think it's quite common, not necessarily programming, but the whole going away, getting experience, coming back. Mm. um, You know, a few years later. Is, is probably reasonably common. Um, I wanted to ask you then, you're, you're, so you're back in Ireland now working with Client Solutions. Um, put, put, put that to one side, I want to just come, come back up a little bit to say, to, to, to ask, when you think back those early years up to where we are now, what was the biggest challenge you came up against that you're most proud of overcoming? I think um, <clears throat> it's no mean feat to go to, to London as a 19-year-old and find yourself a job, build a career um, with, a, you know, with a limited educational background, plenty of competition in London, um, and be able to come out of that experience, say, eight years later in, in what's a relatively strong position to get a job in Ireland. I mean, it doesn't sound a lot when you talk back, and it, you know, it seems at all very you know it's all very quick but when you're living it you know you're living those eight years away it's it's quite a challenge and as you said at the top there kids today have a very different set of challenges but they don't have that one 
Most of them mm. now choose to go abroad if they want to, and they pick and choose where they go, mm. and they're very selective about what they do. And the job market is, even though we're in kind of tough inflationary times, the job market is still pretty strong. And they have a lot, I feel, they have a lot more choices. Now, they've got a lot of different mm. pressures with the huge cost of living and the ability to get a home and so on. Uh, so I, I, my generation have been lucky in that regard. I think, you know, we were able to get on that, that so-called property ladder pretty easily um, and our kids can't. So, um, yeah, just, I think just coming through that whole London phase was, was and getting the degree, I suppose, in parallel, um, I felt was, you know, was, was pretty good from, from my perspective, considering where I kind of left school and, and didn't really have mm. anything academically strong. And, and yet I'd come out the other side, maybe eight or nine years later with, you know, the ability now to get into um, uh, uh, with the with the offer that Client Solutions gave me a management role, you know, which I which I'd said earlier I thought I could do, but I had no practice in doing. And James took a chance, um, and that's uh, credit to him because that's the type of individual he is. Uh, sees sees yeah. talent and people willing to take a chance, not bothered about the academics. Um, I saw him take on so many people in Client Solutions who, you know. People who might be working as a chef but had an interest in being a computer programmer, he'd take them on, right? Um, and that's, mm. you know, that's a sign of a great leader, someone who's willing to do that because many leaders don't want to take that risk. They go the safe route. They, they, they look for people who maybe mirror their own backgrounds and experiences and try and hire those individuals. Um, but he wasn't like that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was um, great to come out the other side and be working for a company like Line Solutions. What have you taken from the great leaders you've worked with that are now part of your repertoire of leadership skill sets? So I've worked for a lot of different managers over over the years. Um, some some okay, some not so great, and some really good. And mm. you take, but it's interesting. You take something from everybody, the good and the bad, whether it's I won't do that or I should do that. Um, mm. Most recently, I worked for a terrific leader. His name is Dennis Sorensen, and he was the senior vice president at a company called Teradata. And uh, Dennis is a, a US uh, executive who came over to Teradata in Maya and, 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 and took that over and gave me an opportunity to run a very significant part of his business. And he was um, very process driven in his sales approach. So I've taken that on board um, very, very heavily. Um, he's all about the, the the science and the process of planning, planning what you're, you're going mm. to do. Now, we're, that business was very much an enterprise business, so we're selling to very large enterprises. So uh, planning was a very important part of what we did. And uh, I've taken that with me in, in, um, quite heavily, as I said. Um, Seamus was, was a great leader, um, completely different style, um, mm. very sharp, huge work ethic um so I, I probably took the the work ethic from him you know he, he would never give up he was uh always on type of guy um and i've i've, I've i'm not i'm nowhere near his work ethic <laughs> i don't think many people are but um i i certainly uh keep going till i get the job done whether it's uh working late night get going through the weekends because it just sets you up better for the next week yeah well, you, you, I mean, you said earlier you, your parents had a very strong work ethic and you came up with that. So that's that's something you recognize and appreciate and value. Is there a point in where a work ethic can become too much and it can become destructive? 
yeah, I mean, the the old cliche about work-life balance, it's not really a cliche. It's something that you should strive towards. You know, if, if you want to be successful, right. I think you have to have a good work-life balance. And what the way I've, the way I've approached it is that sometimes you get into a role which stretches you and you recognize I'm going to have to dip into more work than, you know, what I call my, my the, the life balance is not there. The work-life balance is not there. Right. So as long as you recognize it and you, you define it as a set period of time. So I, I can remember taking on a pretty substantial role there in Teradata and, you know, all of a sudden I was going to manage 16 countries you know, the business was like a hundred million dollars of, of AOR. This is a very significant step up from running something at 20 million. So how am I going to handle this? So my answer was, right, I'm going to push for three months. I'll give myself three months and I'm going to work you know, six days a week and I'm going to keep on top of it because if I just work my normal five day week, I know I'll be underwater. I'll, I'll be Ooh. struggling after two or three months. But if I had kept that pace for six or nine months, I, I, I probably would have fallen apart. So, I think you've got to recognize that you sometimes have to stretch yourself for periods of time and that impacts your family. Sure. You know, clearly it does because you're working six yeah, days a week. Yeah. You know, you're not yeah, going to be able sure. to tend to your family. I also think there's something else in it as well that our partners will tolerate that more when they know there's an end in sight because they've seen that part yeah. of the behavior in the past that they know that, okay, look, this is a hump. We're doing it for good reasons but it will end and then there'll be a period of calm yeah. and then again, there'll be another hump. But if we can see, but if it's, if I think if it's a constant kind of flat out six days a week with, and then yeah. on the seventh day, you're too tired to give your time to anything is uh, the, the word I'm hearing. I've heard recently, which I think is a, 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 a really great expression is work-life integration rather than balance. Balance assumes. And I think just, I think the last two years have brought this to the surface where balance before we kind of had work time and we had personal time. And now is how do we manage the integration of the two? Because with technology and working from home, it's, I think balance is impossible as, as in shutting yourself off for this period and then shutting yourself off for this period for something else. I think it's how do we work the two seamlessly in a way that both, both the needs of both get served. Um, Maybe it's just one of those expressions that sounds fluffy and, and, and good, but I think there's something in it. I think there's something that we need to I think there is too, for. yeah. Integration is an interesting way of describing it because with work from home, I feel people now are in a working day integrating life and work balances it during the day. So it doesn't necessarily mean people stop working at half five. You know, you may have your dinner at half five. Uh, you may then do a little more work after that, but during the day you've taken an hour off to go do something. And, and that, that is a form of integration, I think. Yeah, so that's a good way of describing it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm off to the gym after this podcast. And, and, and that's not a flippant comment. It's just part of that that says, you know what, yeah. there's, there's a time in, of the day when, you're, when it, you're better off early morning, say, for brain activity, and then maybe at a certain time of the day. For me, the gym, I'm too tired in the evening to go to the gym. It yeah. doesn't work for me. For other people, it does. Um, so I, I think it allows people to, to, to find their own balance and integration in that as well when it's, when it's yeah. accepted. Um, where, where, where we're up to, we were talking, oh yes, I wanted to ask you about, I was asking you about your own leadership uh, style and what you'd learned from others. 
You mentioned also some bad leaders. I'm, I'm interested in, in the kind of don'ts. Just obviously we're not talking about people, but just the kind of things that you've seen that says, look, this, can we, can we get past this? This does not work. This just is destructive. If you were to pick out a couple of things from your own experience, what would they be? I, I think um, you've got to be a great listener to be a good leader. Um, there, there's, I think there's a phrase, you know, the servant leader. You're, you're there really to serve your teams and help them succeed. If you, if you, if you take that attitude, you probably can't go wrong. A lot of people mis, misunderstand management and leadership as almost like dictatorship. I'm telling you how this is going to be and your role is to go do it. They may tolerate a little bit of debate, but mostly it's just my way or the highway. And that's the common theme I see in bad management. Um, often it's just simple lack of training. Um, people being good at, at a certain skill or job and being put into management uh, just because they're good at one job, they're not necessarily good at management. You see that mm -hmm. in all walks of life. You know, we, we see all the examples of great coaches and leaders uh, in, say, in sports and football. They're not great footballers, but they're really good managers. And uh, mm -hmm. in, in business, we often promote those really good footballers into management and they don't do very well. Um, and it's not their fault. They're just not suited to it. Mm. So um, for me, I, I, it's 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 more about listening, understanding where your teams are coming from. Obviously, you know, setting them a path to to follow. That everybody needs a direction in work. Um, so the leader needs to come in and set their stall out and say, right, this is the direction we're going. And when it comes to strategy, mm. I almost think it's more important to say what you're not going to do. For me, mm. when I when I try and define a strategy, I often start with, well, I'm not going to do the following. And when I've got through that list, I almost end up, well, this is what I am going to do. And sometimes mm. people start the other way around and it can get a little messy because um, I think I, I read something in a book about Steve Jobs and they had a decision to make about the iPad or the iPhone. And again, they were trying, from a strategic perspective, trying to think which way should they go. And they, they realize, well, we're not going to go down the iPad route because the tech is not there yet. You know, we can't build the screens mm. the way we want them to and so forth. And what just fell out of it was, let's do the iPhone. It wasn't mm. so much they decided, we you know, we need to do the iPhone. It was more or less, we can't do this, so therefore we do the iPhone. And I think you can bring that into your leadership style as well when you're defining your strategy. So, yeah, mm. I, 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 would just, I would just like to reemphasize the fact that... Um, I, good leaders and they have that kind of servant attitude they're they're mm. not there to to um dictate they're much more there to serve the teams and help them be successful and, and i found once you have that attitude teams really come in behind you mm. what you said there about the excluding as well resonated with me on a different level and i wondered is is it just a a general rule for life it was, a, it was an advice actually from a photographer. It was a landscape photographer. And they said that the key to taking a good landscape picture, amongst other things, was the ability to simplify what you're including in the frame, but also to decide on what you're going to exclude from the frame, what you're going to leave out. Yeah, that the mistake a lot of people make, with, is they try to bring everything in. And then the eye is going everywhere, doesn't know where to settle, doesn't know where to focus. And so you pre-visualize that and say, okay, wh what do I want the viewer to experience? What emotion do I want them to have? And, and then as you talked about it from a point of leadership, I said, yeah, that resonates. 
And I just wondered, is it true also in sales, in communication, that our goal is to, is to simplify? And, and also, in, in doing so, we have to make decisions about what we're going to exclude, which can be often more difficult than deciding what we're going to focus on. Would that be a fair yes. statement? Yeah, I mean, simplification is, is, is a good way to describe it. Um, um, there's a, a great author of sales books called Mike Weinberg, whom I'm lucky enough to have met and been coached by over the years. And um, <clears throat> he's, a ter- he's, a, he's a terrific um, sales coach. And he, he, the title of his books used the word simplified. Um, and mm. there's a good reason for that, because he's, he's seen just so much complication of, of what's relatively a straightforward process. Um, mm. you know, t- getting getting your go-to-market list, right? Getting that target list correct so you know who you're going after, getting the tools in place, getting your sales story ready so that you can then go out and execute against your go-to-market list. It's, a, it's quite a simple thing to do, but it's been uh, really? complicated over the years and, and technology in some way has, has tried to confuse the whole sales story. You know, you, you need to use social media to go selling that's not really true you know you, you have the tool already in your hand it's the phone that's that's the tool you use to go selling um, and then the rest of it can help but it's mostly the the phone right i'm I, you're pushing out an open door with this on the phone i also wonder is there a cultural thing an, an age uh, generational thing i should say rather than cultural um people younger people tend to be afraid of the phone not it's not a physical it's not a phone phobia but it's maybe it's a skill set where it's too easy to text somebody a message or send somebody an email whereas you didn't have that option when you started out right so you had to it could be yeah it it could be generationally i mean i certainly see it in my own children not not in a sales context but um they they just don't like talking to people on the phone it's just mm. not a thing they do mm. and it mm. it's um it, it is just so easier to text and and use other digital methods so yeah maybe when when you come from that background and you, you go into sales it just follows through yeah but also they what what i see is people reluctant to even answer a phone particularly if it's for i'm i'm i'll be honest if I don't recognize the number anymore because, because of recently after the computers of the HSE were hacked, there were so many spam calls going in, people trying to yeah. get your deed. Like yeah. I just stopped unless I knew the number. I think it's getting harder to reach people unless you have their direct line and maybe you can send them a text saying, I'm about to call you. Um, I just wondered, yeah, is I, it- I'm, I'm in the same boat, <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah. 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 So, so it is. It is. So, yeah, it is. So on one level, yeah, yeah. On one level, we have the difficulty because people are reluctant to answer a, a number they don't recognize. And secondly, there's also a generational thing where people just prefer not. They prefer to get a, a, a text message rather than have the pressure of a of a conversation. So, uh, something that we're doing here is scary, which which is. Not, not replacing the phone. We still use the phone as, as a core part of the sales cycle, but we're using video mm. um, a lot more now. So mm. we're all used to the pretty horrible standard cold emails that we get trying to position someone's company. And mm. I, I've introduced uh, video software. So instead of that, 
uh, we typically reach out with a personalized video message mm. and we find that it's, it's a, it's a warmer way to introduce yourself. Um, mm. somewhat mm. novel, not everybody's doing it. Um, I use it quite frequently, even if I get a warm introduction by email to somebody, instead of replying to the email, I'll actually do a short 30 second video, just introduce myself and say, you know, mm. we'll, we'll connect on LinkedIn and take it from there. And I think from my perspective, that's worked quite well. And that can lead them to be able to pick up the phone to that individual and get an answer because they know <laughs> it's not a spam call um, and they're, they're essentially expecting your call. So that can be a way around it. Yeah. Have you any experience with pure cold uh, outreach with video? I'm curious to know whether that's worked for you because I've seen mixed mixed, mixed. results with it's, that, including my yeah. own. It's it's mixed. I, th I think... Um, I, I think it's probably have a slightly higher hit rate than a cold email, but mm. it works best when there's already been some some form of contact that the individual is. It's not just completely cold outreach. Now, one one yeah. if you are doing a cold outreach, um, something I deploy quite regularly is if I were trying to cold outreach to you, I'd use your LinkedIn page and then I'd have my video overlaid on that, and it mm. does catch your eye because you can see it's your LinkedIn page. So there's a little bit mm. of personalization straight away. And then you see me who you don't know, but you're drawn in by your own page. It's you. And you'll, you'll probably uh, more than likely click on that. Um, but uh, you're right. It's, it's, it's still not quite as high as having a warm intro first. Yeah. No, I, I do like that. Um, it's something I've been experimenting for, for, for quite a while with the, with the video. And I've found if somebody knows you or you've had any kind of interaction in the past, the, it's like night and day in terms of the open and response yeah. rate, yes. but if it's pure cold. But I like the idea. I, you know, I've seen those. I, I guess you're using Vidyard, just as a yes. wild guess, or yeah. Uh, and I'm using the same myself. That's why I recognize it with the page. And I hadn't thought of doing that. I hadn't thought of, and I, and I saw it but ignored it. My preference always was to do a kind of a full frame. Yeah. You know, hey Fergal, how are you? Type of thing. Yeah. But I realize that now, as you said, that if it's a stranger, that if they see themselves first, you're more likely to get their attention, see you first. Yeah. Because, you know, another, another thing as well, yeah. another thing you could try is if, if it depends, again, depends on the client you're trying to reach out to, but, you know, they may have a location that they're based that they're quite proud of. And you can use um, Google Earth and you can actually do an animation, you know, zoom into their building or a location or whatever it is. And again, it's something that, they recognize pretty quickly and they'll be curious what's this about. Keep going, Fergal. These are great ideas. These are gold. Because <laughs> this is the hard bit of video prospecting, the, the pit that people struggle with. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are, are, are you a bit of a geek? Yeah, definitely. In, in the most positive way possible. I mean that. Like so, you're, you're, no, you're, I don't, you're, I don't. I don't hesitate in saying yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm an Apple, an Apple fanboy. I all around me here have iPads and phones, Snap. and watches and AirPods <laughs> and everything. Else. So yeah, um, always like yeah. a bit of tech. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, mm. yeah. And it's great. It's great when you can bring some of that tech into your workspace. So things like Vidyard. We're also using um, a bit of software called Demo Desk, which is essentially a video platform. But what it provides is a um, a background of playbooks. So for example, if I'm doing a qualification with a prospect, I can set up the call through DemoDesk. It has a playbook that I can follow. So my teams can follow a very specific set of, of 
questions or you know comments that they need to make in that conversation um and then it links in with uh, salesforce at the end and then you can also just um give the prospect a control of the meeting and say, could you book a follow-up meeting with me? Here's my calendar. You know, I get it all done essentially in that one meeting. Um, and then it's, it's recorded. So we can use it for coaching purposes afterwards. I can, I can either listen into the call as it's going, but not be in the call, uh, or mm. we can look at it afterwards. And it's a great coaching um, platform as well. Mm. I want to ask you then about your experience with playbooks. Again, I have mixed feelings about it. On one level, I get it. You're you're embedding best practice. Uh, You're ensuring people follow a process. Is there a danger that people can over-rely on them and use them as like just prompts? And, and, And in doing so, it can break the connection between them and the prospect. They're too busy following the playbook to engage and be present. And how do you overcome that yes, if, if um, so 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 yes, that's absolutely what can and does happen. And how you overcome it is coaching. So what I, I spend quite a bit of time with the BDRs, um, as I said, listening back on what they've they've been talking through with prospects and then just pointing out situations where you could have potentially mm-hmm. asked something there or the, the client was giving you an opportunity to say something there, but you actually went back to your playbook and like to your point, kind of follow the playbook rather than realizing, hang on, this is where I jump out of the playbook and I kind of interact with the person properly. So mm-hmm. to me, it's it's a bit of coaching, it's experience. And as you become more experienced, you'll recognize in yourself that, hey, listen, I know this playbook. I don't mm-hmm. really need to read it rote by rote. Initially, you don't. Mm-hmm. And, and you do find yourself reading it. But pretty quickly, you, you realize, look, I know what's coming next in the playbook. And you then your ear starts getting more tuned to what the person is saying and less about trying to read the next question and it becomes yeah. a much more natural experience for both for both the participants um but uh, it does it does have those pitfalls yeah yeah are you using any kind of call intelligence software um no we're not at the moment we have looked okay. at a few vendors but um just the, the reason for that is just I've introduced quite a bit of software, as I mentioned, the Vidyard and the Demo Desk, and we've got Salesforce going and Pardot. And I need to just pause. Yeah, the, yeah, no, the that's fair. So that tech, yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, it, could, yeah. it could be next on the list. Yeah, could be. Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in how people are using it to integrate both coaching and training into the playbooks and, and, and making it so that you're giving people that like two plus two type ownership over how they engage with prospects and the ability then to analyze mm-hmm. it. And yeah, there's, there's a lot there, but I, I can understand why you'd want to parse that out. Um, I wanted to ask you about people in your life who've, who've either people you, you know personally, or maybe somebody you've never met, but has it had a huge influence who has inspired you enormously. Who would you look to? Um, I think I'd go back to Dennis Sorensen at uh, my days in, in Teradata. He, he inspired me a lot because 30 years of experience of selling, you know, huge repertoire of stories about you know, different sales strategies and tactics that he deployed. I feel I learned a lot from him in a very short period of time. I think we only worked together for a couple of years. Um, we still keep in contact. He's back in the US now. And uh, I, I, I did find him quite an inspiring person and really enjoyed working with him, learned a lot. 
and I'm glad to say I've taken a lot of those learnings and I passed them on. You know, and I think that's a that's our role in the in, in a leadership role is to pass on your experiences. Mm. You know, not not kind of put your arms around your own experiences mm. and use them kind of uh, for your own benefit. It's it's to share them far and wide, and I, I have no problem in doing that. And um, uh, Dennis gave me a lot of uh, a lot of great strategies and tactics, which I share to this day. You mentioned there about his repertoire of stories. How important are stories in not just passing knowledge on, but inspiring and influencing others? Yeah, I think stories are so important because in the sales process, essentially, you're trying to tell a story. You're, you're trying to initially just understand the client's pain points. What, what is it that you're suffering from? And then you're trying to offer that solution. But in between, there's a story to tell. And so stories are very important. And I use them a lot. And uh, my team probably get a little bored of my stories. But I use them just to simply demonstrate the the, the tactic or the strategies I'm trying to get across. So if, I, if I'm trying mm-hmm. to say there's a particular strategy you should deploy, I can then give a story behind it and say, look, I, I've been here before. I've, I have deployed this strategy. And it's worked in this instant. And I give an exact story behind that. And mm-hmm. I'd like to think that. Um, they can see some substance then to the tactic or strategy that you're trying to get them to deploy because you mm. know there's a real story behind it. Whereas if it's just all theory, I think mostly yeah. you know if, if if I'm told something that's all theoretical, I find it hard to um, engage with that. Mm. Why do you think then? I'm just curious to get your insight on this. That there's any amount of training on technique, process, qualification frameworks and so on but we rarely see storytelling trained as an art form as a as as a method a, a time-tested method of influence and communication and and you just they exist but they're certainly not mainstream and you rarely see it on any kind of curriculum and i, I just it, it beggars my belief why that is i don't understand it It is hard to grasp, isn't it? Why why it's mm. not out there? Um, I think just in general, there's so many sales techniques and processes and and books and training that you can absorb on selling. It's almost like there's so much that people almost switch off from it. Um, because mm. I've I've managed a lot of sales teams, and I notice a lot of the basics just aren't there. Just, just mm-hmm. the ability to describe what your company does in very simple terms. People get tongue-tied, falling over themselves, unable mm-hmm. to explain. And these are the basics. And so you can be the best cold caller in the world, but if you can't describe what it is your company can do for the for the prospect, you know, what pain point can I solve for you? What what mm-hmm. issue can I resolve? You, you're going you're not going to get very far. So you can have a lot of activity, a lot of outgo outbound calling and emails and all the rest of them your videos and all of those great things but if your messaging is not there you just yeah. won't get very far so it's it's something i've i and again go back to dennis and we and and actually mike weinberg is, 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 a, is a great author mm. of the sales story um and mm. i re- religiously retell you know i think it's chapter eight of his book i, I even know the chapter in, in the book now I've, I've used the story so far but he's a great proponent of that sales story you know, not not making it all about you, the company, and making it much more about your clients and mm. and what you can do for them and, and mm. why they turn to you. Why do why do clients mm. turn to you? 
I have a sneaking suspicion. I, I, I think it comes from a couple of places myself, but again, I just don't know why I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Is one is that storytelling in itself can sound a little bit fluffy, right? Because how do you define it? Is it the person in the bar who's having a laugh and telling a, a, a risque joke as a story? Yeah, that exists. Is it something on a screen that lasts 90 minutes? Star Wars is a story. Is it a, a tagline? Um, like the L'Oreal one was, uh, because you're worth it, right? Telling a story there. Mm. They talk about photographs telling stories. So in some way, it's a very hard to define concept by itself. So people don't always know what it means. That's one side. And then the other side is, it's, you can't, <laughs> it's not proprietary. There's no training company on the planet can trademark it. Because it's, it's, it's been around since time immemorial. And, but it's so powerful, I just, I don't know. It's a shame because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, just such a simple way. And the interesting thing I often find is that, actually, I was talking to a guy, a, a well-known author of a book, and I wanted to get him on the podcast. And it was resisting at first. And I, I got on the phone with him, and I said to him, I said, here's a reason why I said you might not want to come on the podcast. It's not about your book. I wanted about you. It's your story. And it was fun. it was just, it was like night and day. He says, oh, thank God, he said. I hate talking about the book. He says, I feel so much pressure. <laughs> I can talk, and they can talk about himself and his own story with a 100% authenticity. Mm. And we talk about being authentic and bringing that to a sales conversation. Well, there's no better way. Or when we can talk about the customers we've helped and, and their stories and where they've tried to get to and the struggles they've had and how the options they considered yeah. and how they fixed it. It's like, it makes, again, I'm sorry. I, I could be on this soapbox all day. I just don't get it. I don't, don't get it. Yeah, I think, I think. That the, I mean, so in some cases, if you've got a young sales force, they, they don't have a, a big bank of stories to tell from their own experiences. So they're reliant on maybe mm. others. So, and, and maybe they're a little one. reluctant because they're telling, you know, they're telling someone else's story, essentially. Whereas in my mm. case, Unfortunately, been around a long time. I have my own war stories that I can I can dip into. But yeah, um, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm laughing on this one because something just popped into my head. Which I, you said they're telling other people's stories. In some respects, that's okay. I remember, and I, and I, if I, you don't mind me just indulging you, me on this one because it's it, it, it is interesting how it panned out. Go ahead. Was when I started out doing this 20 years ago, I would listen a lot to David Sandler. He was a great storyteller. And he would talk about putting people at ease. And there was a, a great story he told was about a dentist. And he contrasted, you know, the old dentist where you went in and there was a, a fearful experience versus the modern dentist who will explain things mm -hmm. to you. They'll, they'll talk about the process and what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. And you're much more relaxed, right? And, and he did this in the context of going to the dentist. And I thought, that's great. And I thought, well, I've been to the dentist. I, I get both of those scenarios. I'll tell it as my story. So I take the framework and the yeah. content, but just m massage it a little bit. And I did this in class a lot on a particular topic. And I was training in this company, and one of the internal trainers was also doing a class in another room. And he had sat in on my class, and he, he listened to the dentist's story. So he decided to tell the story in the other class. And at break time, one of the uh, students in the class came up, and they, they had been talking to their colleagues. These were all new hires in the other class. Mm. And they said, hey, 
did you and Ian go to the same dentist? Because <laughs> the stories were exactly the same. Exactly the same. So, yeah, so, so, so that is something. But I do think you can tell other others' stories, and I think you can collect them. But I do. I think what you're saying is that it's it is a long term strategy. You have to start collecting. You have to start paying attention, so that you can call well, on the yeah, money. Yeah, you do because. So, so one of the focuses of Scurry at the moment is we have, we have a huge bank of fantastic clients. But when I went to look for the case studies, they, they weren't really there. There was a, there was a handful, you know, um, I think two or three is all we had. And it's probably just because the company's so busy growing, you just don't get a chance to celebrate the, the case study with a client and you move on to the next one and the next one. Before you know it, you've got a big bank of really happy customers, but you actually haven't, you know, leveraged that. So, so we're making a conscious attempt to do that now. And, because of that, I'm going to be able to go back to the sales team and say, look, here, here's some great stories that mm. you can delve into. <clears throat> Clearly, they're not your story, but they're the company story. And this is mm. how you know, we've treated uh, our clients. This is, these, these are the pain points they have, and here's how we've solved them. So when you're talking to that next prospect on your qualification call and you're following your playbook religiously, don't forget there's all mm. these great stories out there that you should weave into that conversation. Now, I can't write the stories into the playbook. It just wouldn't come across Ooh. well. So I have to say, go go learn, you know, go read those case studies 20 times and just just Ooh. get to the point where it's almost like you, you intimately know this story. And then Ooh. you will find when you, you know, if you're at a conference and someone comes up to you and asks you what, what Scurry does, you can just immediately roll it off the top of your tongue and you talk about, you know, the stories that we've just talked about there. Yeah, for sure. Uh we're almost up on time, Fergal. I'd like to ask you a couple of uh, final questions just to uh, finish this out. It's my desert island question. I ask every guest who comes on the podcast is if your house is burning down and you, your, your family are safe and your phone and your computer, they're also safe and any pets you have are safe and you've got time to run back in and rescue one item, what would it be? Um... What would it be? I'm not, although I'm a bit of a geek, I'm not that material. So mm -hmm. it wouldn't bother me too much if my phone and everything else went up in smoke. You know, I, I would probably look to things that meant something to me, like um, a bit of jewelry that's come down the ages, that type of thing. You know, so that's probably what I'd, I'd run back in for because they have a very sentimental mean or an attachment to a person mm. or you know a, a family member or something like that but you know things like computers and all the other material stuff we have mm. they can they can all be replaced so i wouldn't be risking my life <laughs> for any of that and and if you're picking a piece of jewelry is it just because of who had it or because there's some story attached to it yeah there's a story you know so i i have a ring that uh, i wear occasionally and then sometimes i don't i put it away and mm. so that could be sitting on a shelf in the house that I'd need to run back in to get to. And it was just something my, my mother bought me when I was, um, I'm trying to think of the age. It was, um, could have been 18 or 19, but it was around that time I went to London. Mm. And uh, not a particularly huge story, but it was just something that she consciously went out and kind of gave me something mm. to kind of mark that event in my life. And, um, mm. you know, the ring itself is is just a chunk of gold, right? But you're right, it's the story behind it, just the attachment to that story, yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, final question then, when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? 
Uh, he did some good. <laughs> I think that would be the title. I, I, I try, you know, at all times, whether it's in your life or, or you know, uh, your personal life or your work life, you try and do some good, don't you? You, you, you try and get through this life, um, you know, doing some good for yourself, for other yep. people. And I think 99% of people will tell you at the times they're most happy is when they do something for someone else. It's not so much something for themselves that made them feel happy. It's they did something for someone else. Sure. I think that's universal, right? We, we, we get more kick out of that, I think, than uh, anything that we do for ourselves. Sure. That's a perfect place to leave it. Fergal Carl, thank you so much. Fergal, oh, Carl, I beg your pardon. Thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much.